Hi, this is Tracy Lalliberti, and I'm the Executive Director for the Center for Advanced Studies in Child Welfare. And today I get the opportunity to speak a little bit with Assistant Professor Jessica Toft at the University of Minnesota. Jessica earned her PhD in 2005 and has been teaching and mentoring students ever since, in addition to the research that she has been doing. And much of what she does has great applicability to folks in the child welfare workforce. So we wanted to take a little time to talk about um, one of the areas that she does research in, um, in which we have a series of podcasts to follow on neoliberalism. It can be kind of a, a difficult topic to understand sometimes, but again, very applicable to child welfare. So welcome, Jessica. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. I'm wondering if you can talk a little bit about what is neoliberalism? Uh, this is a great question. And uh, first of all, I'm going to start off by talking about what it's not. Um, neoliberalism is not related to today's ideas of left-leaning politics of liberals. Uh, rather, it's liberal in, in neoliberalism. This refers to the idea of liberty and in this case, economic liberty or freedom, typically represented in the U.S. in the idea of free markets. So neoliberalism is a new version of free market thinking that has big implications for the political and social life of all citizens and residents in the United States. So unlike old free market liberalism that said government should stay out of the business of business, not regulate them, Neoliberalism actually proposes that governments do get involved, but not by regulating markets, instead by regulating people and the systems that govern people, like social work. Everyday people play an important role in neoliberalism. First, they are the workers of markets in which to make profits. Second, they are the people who provide the daily caregiving of workers and would-be workers like parents, especially the mothers. And third, the people in society play an important role in creating a social order that comes to accept and act out expectations of a neoliberal vision. So neoliberalism is the application of market logic to all arenas of life. And by mar market logic, that includes self-interest, the idea of being interested in my own well-being. Uh, our sat uh, needs are satisfied only through transactional exchange with others. Um, individual responsibility, and a constant stance of competition. How do I make the most profit or the best return on nearly any exchange? And this logic is applied to the individual level, but it's also embedded in all the systems that are created to help people. So because typically in social work, we work within nonprofit or state settings, although some do work for for-profit settings, this looks, like const this looks less like constant profit making and more like constant cost savings and efficiencies. So market and business principles are institutionalized in the delivery of social services. And this is seen in how social policies are designed, how state rules are crafted, and how agency work is directed, often through a business idea of contracts, by the way, in which outcomes and methods are preset. And social workers who experience neoliberal managerialism in all contexts, um, and, and certainly child welfare work, will have experienced an, an emphasis on efficiency, increased monitoring of their work and paperwork, 
applying sanctions and incentives um, onto workers engaging in services. And actually, this is played out in them sanctioning, incentiving, incentivizing their own clients. And the standardization of practice, uh, the practice methods and preset outcomes. Okay, there is a lot to unpack there. So let's think about for child welfare, what, what does this really mean? Because as I'm listening to you, it screams the child welfare setting in terms of how it's been created and how it's changed over the last 20 to 30 years, right? Yeah. Um, the feds first created child welfare and said, hey, states, you have to have child welfare, go do it. And over time, there have been rules and regulations and accountability measures that people have put in place with this idea of not just accountability, but efficiency and effectiveness and, um, and regulating the dollars. And we know that there's a lot that then gets connected to institutional racism, who benefits from this, who doesn't benefit from this. So let's unpack that a little bit and talk about it. So when we think about neoliberalism today in child welfare, um, what do you think are some of the driving pieces that an individual worker, a day-to-day worker might be encountering? Yes. So, um, well, I think first of all, uh, because... Uh, neoliberalism wants systems and social systems to work like markets. And this could be in the nonprofit sector, it could be in the state sector, certainly in the for-profit sector where we see social services some these days. We will see um, systems set up so that practice is standardized. There's not much discretion in what you do. You have few ways of responding to situations. You will see pressures. Workers will be pressured to make quick decisions. Um, speedy decisions. Um, Workers will also be asked to limit the risks or exposure to risk that could imperil the system. So for workers, this means sometimes uh, this looks like maybe removing a child from family because of quote-unquote risk in the moment rather than uh, thinking about protection in a, in a longer frame or a lo- over time where you would be involved and build relationship and build in um, systems of support. Um, so you would see pressures for speed. You would see pressures for routinized work. You would probably see pressures to close cases. And um, also there would be pressures at the beginning of the system to not let in um, people in the front end uh, because that would just increase the pressures on the system and all the, what the delivery of the system is supposed to look like. Um, there's more to that, but that's a start. So what, what would neoliberalism tell us, the study of neoliberalism, what would it tell us about institutional racism or yeah. our profound disparities and disproportionality, which Minnesota struggles so desperately yeah. with? Uh, neoliberalism is a stealthy son of a gun. Um, I will say that uh, um, it's a political philosophy, so it's a big idea, but one of the ways that neoliberalism works is to take the person, the citizen, and and say to them, instead of being a person with rights, you are an economic actor who has to earn your way. So 
narratives, racist narratives, misogynistic narratives, narratives that make people that um, position people as being totally responsible for their poverty. These work in tandem with neoliberalism because they um, take away the claim for equality, the claim for rights based on being a member of a political community. So um, the ideas of let's let's take um, one of my areas of study has been uh, welfare reform. So the temporary assistance for needy families really got through Congress because it claimed that uh, uh, women who were receiving assistance were mostly women of color, which was not true. But then the the racist tropes of uh, dependency and being lazy and um, and uh, all of those things came into play to promote. Uh, the idea is that assistance was not a right of citizenship. So TANF actually took away a right of citizenship, which was entitlement to AFDC, and made it now that people had to earn it through contract, through work. Um, and so this is what, so um, uh, racist narratives, narratives that say that women's work, caregiving work is not really work, also works uh, for neoliberalism because all of the parenting work and every all of that um, care that goes into it and the hourly uh, uh, and and sweat that goes into it um, is not recognized. So and so that if if that's not recognized, then it looks like you're being lazy. The parenting is being lazy, and so that then puts you into the pressures of neoliberalism and having to engage in. Um, low-wage work. Uh, the idea is that people are individually responsible for their own poverty is another narrative that takes totally disregards history, social context, political influences. So um, I think these things are seen in the child welfare system, that we see more persons of color, we see women who tend to be caregivers, um, because they are... Uh, um, uh, put into the situations where they don't have those supports, they don't, they don't have the political power, they don't have the protection of middle-income jobs, for example, which middle-income jobs provide health care, they uh, help you build wealth, they help you buy homes. Um, and, and so we see instead those people who have been left out of society's um, uh, um, uh, largesse by... Um, because of these systems, we see them in the child welfare system to a greater extent. So interesting that you're the way that you're framing this, Jessica. And and there's a, a three part podcast series that's going to follow this introduction, so people can really dig in and learn a lot more. But I do think it's really important to kind of think about two additional things. You know, one often a criticism. Uh, by community members and advocates of child welfare is, you know, it's just a machine. It's just to make money. The, the adoption network is just about, you know, pulling in more dollars. And I, I've often thought to myself, you know, I, I know a lot of child welfare professionals in the country and nobody that I know is out in somebody's house saying, well, the county's short on dollars. We better, you know, remove some more kids. I mean, it isn't a linear, concrete kind of of uh, of events that happens. But the neoliberalism, as you're describing it, accounts for what then is the outcome because it's about protecting the system. It's that the system creates structure and a regiment that is in place and almost 
feels intractable as professionals graduate college and they are you know, ready to change the world and support kids and families and help people, they get into these systems that are just entrenched in, in some of these um, institutional uh, ways. So am I getting that right? Is that along the right lines? Yeah, no, I think that's a really uh, great point because we often like to do a cause and effect kind of analysis, like there's an intention and then this is the outcome of it. But you're so right that these are systems that are have been put into place and they've been nurtured and they've been protected to have a societal order so that people play by the rules. And in fact, it's, it's um, hard to even see it anymore because we are just parts of the system and, and we actually play a role in keeping the system going. Um, and so what I, one thing I want to say to those new uh, social workers and child welfare workers is that systems are created. They're a construct of humans. They, uh, not that we necessarily realize it, but that also means that we can undo them. And one of the first ways to undo them is to unthink them. So we need to have new ideas to resist. And one of the things I love that Mimi Abramovitz says, and she's on our last podcast, is that thinking is practice. And uh, thinking in resistive ways and resistance is practice. And it's got to be our first way of being, a, to raise our consciousness, to see it. And then once we start to see it, we can come together in collective and community in our workplaces, uh, within our um, schools, in our classes, um, in our communities, and talk about other ways. Uh, reimagine people as citizens with rights rather than imagining, and parents as people with rights rather than as subjects or clients who need to toe the line. You know, you need to follow the rules. Um, and I think that would be, um, that's our first step. So interesting. That was the second thing I was going to bring up. And, and then I think we should wrap up so people can get into the meat of the podcast. But, you know, there has certainly been, cert certainly for the last year, much more talk about um, the abolishment of police departments, again, as a systemic structure. And in a parallel fashion, um, the child welfare system that goes so closely with that, right? It's a, it's, it's often seen as a, a policing network, um, or akin to the policing network. And many, many calls be beyond just this year. I think of colleagues at um, Alia, an organization that has been trying to have conversations like this, dismantling the system. We need a different system. The reform of system doesn't really seem to take enough change to really make a difference um, for kids and families. Similar to what you just said that Mimi Abramovitz said, you know, people come to come to the to the table to to put into practice change and it gets stuck. Mm -hmm. And so do we just need a different do we need to build a different construct? get rid of the system that we have altogether. And it's very controversial. Um, Alan Detloff is talking about this a lot in the field of child welfare as well. Um, and I think it, it makes people nervous. They don't really know what to do with that. Do we really get rid of it? If we get rid of it, what does that mean for the safety and protection of kids? Mm -hmm. While also holding that balance of, we know it isn't serving kids and families in all cases to the best of our ability. So what, what would you say about that, um, you know, the, 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 dis, the dismantling of the system um, that some people are calling for? Yeah, this is a wicked problem, um, as they say. <laughs> and um, um, I think about, like, if you think about uh, 
this is going to seem an odd analogy, but think about uh, gambling uh, at casinos. The house will always win, right? You set up a system where the house will always win. And I think about child welfare some ways, the way that it's structured right now, the house, the system that will always, with the parents don't really have a chance in, in the long run. On the other hand, if you totally dismantle it, that th there's also um, a, a lack of support for families in the ways that they have been getting support, and also children are left in a, in a tough situation. So I think there has to be a both and happening, if, in, in my perspective, a both and of some kind. Um, and I, it's, it is a wicked problem, so I'm not going to pretend like I know the answer to this necessarily, but I, I do know that right now it feels like it's a, conce a casino mentality, and we have to. We have to alter and change it, and, um, and we have to get the concept of history and time and not just immediate risk. It has to be a long haul. It can't be just the here and now. We have to see this in the past, and we have to see it in the future. And, and if we can start thinking about it in that way, maybe we can give ourselves enough space to do a both and. Well, it's interesting that you say that because I think that child welfare's history, our history as a field, has been this dichotomous, you know, we protect children or we preserve families. And the reality is protecting children and preserving families goes together. Preserving families is protecting children, right? It, it, we need to look at these things in an integrated way, not an either or. So as you're talking about it, yes, perhaps it is a different system, but it's a system that's built to do all of those things along a continuum rather than pitting a parent against a child, which is never what, what never. we want to be um, doing. It's not helpful. Yes, and I will just say one last thing. This is, this is not about the child welfare system, really. It's about it's about our political system, our political economic system. And that's where I think that the abolitionist movement really has a great point that we have to first have a good political economic system where people actually have a chance to win at the casino all the time. Right? And it shouldn't be a casino, by the way. It should be a lot less risk. Um, and maybe we're seeing some uh, visions of it here with a uh, new administration, et cetera, child poverty cut in half. If we had housing, if we had health care, if we had economic solvency, imagine we probably the, the child welfare system would be a lot smaller than it is today. You have given us a lot to think about, and this has been, well, this is great, because I think that once you get into the other podcasts, things kind of, you start getting really deep into it, and and having this as a base for being able to understand the, those conversations, and again, kind of yeah. the pinnacle kind of ending with Mimi Abramovitz, who um, is certainly a, a rock star in our field of child welfare, and, and somebody that we have great admiration and respect for. Um, it's a it's a great series. So thank you for developing this series. Thanks for spending some time chatting with me to to kind of orient people to this. And uh, we look forward to working with you more. Uh, thank you. And I, I just want to thank the Center for Advanced Studies and Child Welfare because this is a it's a tough it's a tough topic. So it takes some courage to take it on, but it is a really important topic. And I'm so excited that we're doing this here. Um, so thank you very much, uh, Tracy, for this opportunity. This podcast was supported in part by a grant from the Minnesota Department of Human Services, Children and Family Services Division.